Welcome to the Unite Church podcast. For more information about Unite Church, visit unitechurchak.org. Now enjoy this message. And I was thinking about the flag and just the fact that it, what it represents. It's, it's a metaphor, really, flags are. for uh, They're a symbol of what the nation really is. And I know... I, I know, Zach already talked about it, well, this isn't the perfect nation by any stretch. Uh, but we also know that America was actually founded largely by Christian believers for the glory of God. That was their statement, for the glory of God. Now, they weren't all believers, they weren't all, but most of the ones who weren't were deists, who at least believed God and believed in the sovereignty of God and believed that God did have a purpose for America. And that purpose really is to display the glory of God to the world. Now, the truth is, every nation has a purpose. Every nation has a purpose. I'm grateful that I'm in this nation that was founded for the purpose of displaying the glory of God, the light of his glory. And I want to talk about the light of God's glory. So we're going to go to Genesis, the first chapter, in the first verse. We're going to talk about the light of God's glory. So in Genesis 1-1, it simply says, in the beginning. That's a long, long time ago. And that's just an estimate. I don't know where it begins. It's just a long, you, you can, depending on who you talk to, it says 6,000 years ago. This is 16 billion years ago. I don't know. And I really don't care what your opinion is on the matter. <laughs> I've heard all the opinions. Okay. In the beginning, this is what happened. God created the heavens and the earth. It says, The earth was without form, its void, darkness over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I know, studying the book of Genesis, there's a pattern that shows up. God makes a statement in the book of Genesis. A statement will be made, usually about a, you know, a fact or a person. And then what follows is the explanation of or the details of that statement. And so it's not necessarily chronological. The statement that exists at the beginning, and this is, there's like 10 of these statements, says these are the generations of, the Hebrew word is toledot, uh, these are the generations of. There's 10 of those in the book of Genesis. Those are the internal divisions of the book. And each one says these are the generations of, there will be a list of names, and then there will be a story behind it about how that exists and what those people did. So, what you find in the first chapter of Genesis is somewhat the same thing. It's not a toledote, but it actually is a statement of a fact. In the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth. Verse 3 follows up with the explanation of how that all comes to be. Verse 3 doesn't follow verse 2 chronologically. It explains verse 1 and 2. All right, so with that in mind, here's what happens next. God said, let there be light, and there was light. This begins creation. God says, let there be light, and the lights come on. In Hebrew, it's actually just one word, lights. Just lights. It's a verb. Lights, we use word light as a noun, but... In Hebrew, this is a, the verb form. We don't have a verb form of lights. But it's a verb form of lights, as in turn on the lights. It's what the director means when he says to the, he says to the stage guy, lights! 
and somebody turns the lights on. It's the command of God that turned the lights on. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And this begins creation. Now, we're going to follow this up. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, and we're going to talk more about this light. So what follows, uh, what actually precedes verse 16? We're going to start at verse 16, but what precedes verse 16 is a discussion on Moses' shiny face and the bag they put over his head because of his shiny face. They called it a veil, but it was a bag. Moses had gone up into the mountain of God, and he had been in the presence of God for 40 days, and he comes off the mountain with the, tables of stone, the stone tables of, of the, the Ten Commandments. And when he came down, everybody looked at him and like, oh, because his face was lit up. He was in the presence for 40 days, and the light transformed him. Moses was transfigured. He was, he was, he, his, he was glowing. And it was so distracting, they put a bag over his head. All right. So, we're just going to read this. But, oh, before I say that, Paul goes on to talk about that, and he says, when Moses is read today, in other words, when Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, says when Moses is read, there's still a veil. But it's not on Moses' head. The veil is over the hearts of the people reading it so that they don't see and don't understand the light of God's glory on those words. And they misunderstand what's going on. But he says, here's in verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Hallelujah. When, the Lord, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's, we just read that, right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with an unveiled face, why do we have an unveiled face? Because we have turned to the Lord. With an, all with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are looking at the glory of God. We walk into his presence and we see the glory of, of God and it's shining from the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the next verse says. So we have this, we have this image where we are actually transformed by the light of God. The, the very light that created everything is actually shining in us. And as we look on that glory, we're transfigured as well. So let's go read on to this uh, verse. We're going to skip ahead uh, just a few verses, actually, the fourth chapter and the sixth verse. This is, uh, that was the end of chapter, thir- uh, chapter 3. So chapter 4 starts off. We're just going to go to chapter, uh, verse 6 of there and talk about this treasure. What, the discussion here moves from the light shining on Moses' face to the light shining on Jesus' face. For God who said... Let light shine out of darkness. Remember when he said that? We just read it in Genesis, Genesis 1. Let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That light shines from Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Clay pots. 
I think the King James says earthen vessels. You know, I don't like this translation. It says the jars of clay. I think uh, NIV says it about the same way, jars of clay. That just sounds too fancy, jars of clay. When, when Paul wrote this, he didn't mean for the jars of clay to be thought of as something fancy. Because when we read jars of clay, I think of something as, you know, some nice piece of pottery. He doesn't mean that. He just means clay pots. He just means something, just, just an ugly old clay pot. You remember this, you know where he gets this? Out of Genesis again, where, where it says that when he created man in his own image, he created, he fashioned him out of the dust of the earth. He takes the very elements that he's already created, and he gathers those elements and forms man from the dust of the earth. We are dirt bags. That is actually the intent of what Paul is getting at here. He's, it's meant to insult you. You spent, I don't know, how, how long did you spend today decorating your dirt bag? You washed it up, you cleaned it up, you put some paint on it, you know, you dressed it nicely. You came to church to look nice. Thank you all for looking nice. You know, you probably look better than I do. And so, but you know, down deep, just inside, really, what are you? Dirt bags. Really. You are a clay pot. And the reason why, you're, reason why God puts his glory in your clay pot is to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It isn't about our clay pots. It's about his glory. The power of God's creative light is infused into our pots, empowering us for a purpose. For a purpose. You have been empowered by the, by the glory of God for a divine purpose. Wow. So I want to take a look real quick. Well, it won't be all that quick. But I want to take a look at how God... <laughs> thinking about telling a joke. No, I am, no I'm not going to do it. <laughs> okay. We're gonna, I'll probably get to it later, though. So hang on. You won't miss anything. Let's take a look at how the glory of God, the power of God's glorious treasure played out in the early church. Let's go to the book of Acts, and we're just going to take a look at how God transformed his church. So in the book of Acts, in the second, actually the first chapter, he says, Stay in Jerusalem until the power from on high comes, and you are filled with the Spirit of God, and then you're going to be my witnesses in, first of all, in Jerusalem, and then you're going to go to Judea, and then you're going to go to Samaria, and then you're going to go to all the rest of the earth. So it's all, and you're going to even come to Alaska. Some of, some of us did. All right, so, but that, that, that witness of God, witness of God's work, has spread throughout the world. That's his point here. All right. Then, in chapter 2, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes. Everybody's filled with the Holy Spirit. There's it's just, uh, the whole group are. And the noise was so deafening, there was this racket coming off. Uh, it was, he said this, they had a sound of a rushing mighty wind. What that means is it sounded like a roaring wind. There was no wind, but it just sounded, it was just a roaring noise, sounded like a thunder, like a tornado blowing in that room up there. And then there was these little tongues of fire, sort of like fire. It doesn't, they weren't really fire. The Bible says they weren't actually fire. It was like something like fire, the fire of God. And it's not like real fire, 
Well, and it's actually more real than what we think of as real fire. All right, so that's what was going on, and they all started speaking in tongues. All right, so that, people gather around. Peter stands up and he preaches this message, and 3,000 people come to Jesus right there. 3,000 people have their come to Jesus moment. All right, now, and then in verse 42 it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So a couple of things I want to point out here. It was the apostles' teaching, and all the miracles were done by the apostles. All the preaching was done by the apostles, and all the miracles were done by the apostles. All of it. That's all it says. Everything was being done by the apostles, and there were 12 of them. And they, all these people believed were together and had all things in common. So they started a commune. The problem was when all these 3,000 people got saved, probably 2,000 of them were from out of town. They'd come for the feast of Passover. And it was two-thirds to three-quarters of the people. Uh, you know, the, the town would just multiply by three, four times the, its normal size. And so all these people are gathering around. You know, they're just hanging loose. They didn't have a place to stay. There wasn't any rooms left over. And so they all went this noise started happening. Everybody runs there. Most of the people who ran there were the out-of-towners because they were already out of their houses. Yeah. You think about it. So when all these people from out of town get saved, where, what are they going to do? Well, they start pooling their resources and coming up with housing arrangements. And it, it, it talked about, uh, the history talks about how over the next several years they would buy up entire city blocks. Entire city blocks as the church grew. And they, would, they had this big communal food distribution system that's talked about here. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added... Note that word, addition. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we have 12 apostles doing the teaching, 12 apostles doing, the, uh, doing all the miracles, and the Lord was adding, adding, adding. All right, skip on to chapter 5. And several things have happened here uh, in the meantime, but we had another major event, a couple of more major events. Another 5,000 people come into the kingdom of God when Peter preaches his second sermon. The guy's on a roll, I'll tell you. Uh, so Acts 5, verse 12 says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. It was by the apostles who were doing it. And they were all together in Solom Solomon's portico. It was probably the largest Thing, uh, attached to the temple grounds where people could gather. It was just a huge open-air cathedral kind of a thing, uh, big pillars around it holding the roof up. None of the rest dared join them. Nobody said, well, I just want to go and I'll try this Christian thing out. No, only there were people joining them, but none of the rest of them joined them. But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, multitudes of both men and women. But it's addition, and it's the hands of the apostles doing all the work. And it's addition. So that changes. It goes from addition to multiplication. Watch this. Chapter 6. Now, in those days... When the disciples were increasing in number, they're still being added, still being added, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews. 
the Hellenists, were Greek-speaking Jews. They were the Jews from out of town that had come from hundreds of miles, some of them. And so they, had, uh, they didn't speak Hebrew, but they, everybody spoke enough Greek to get along. And so these Greek-speaking people, the Hellenists, the Jews, they were being neglected, or some of them, uh, uh, complained against the, by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected by the daily distribution. Oops. I mean, it was just a mistake. Nobody intended to, you know, we don't, we don't like Hellenists, so we're not going to feed them. And nobody was doing that. So, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples together and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This job has gotten so big, it's consuming all our time. We've got to do something else. Somebody else has to take this part of the job. So, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, and that we will appoint to the duty. That word appoint is the same word they use for ordain. What they did is they laid their hands on these seven guys that were full of the Spirit of God, and they appointed them for the position of administrating the food distribution network. Only they didn't stay in their lanes. All right, well, read this. But if you skip down to verse 7, it says this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Why did it change? Why did we go from addition to, ch- to multiplication? What changed was the addition of more ministers. Once you expand the ministries, ministry bases, all of a sudden the church goes from addition to multiplication. And it doesn't stop there. If you go to chapter 8, in the meantime, what we've got here um, is chapter 7, um, Philip didn't stay in his lane at all. And Philip it was one of the seven, and he was supposed to, you know, wait on tables and make sure the food got away. But instead, he's out there on a street corner preaching the gospel, and people are coming into the kingdom of God, and he's performing miracles. People are getting healed right there on the street. Okay, so great things are happening. Well, the priests get really nervous about this. They think, oh, my goodness, this has been bad up till now. We're losing all these people to that cult. Christian cult, and so, but now we have, now we got not just those 12, but we added more people. They're expanding their ministries. We got to do something about that. So they arrest, they arrest Stephen, and of course, by the end of chapter 7, Stephen is executed. They stoned Stephen in a kind of a riot, but you know, nonetheless, he gets stoned. So Acts 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in town, but the rest, everybody else, not everybody else, most everybody else. Not everybody could leave, actually. The whole lot of the church were actually slaves. We don't really think about that. But probably more than half of the church was actually slaves. And so they, well, they couldn't leave town. <laughs> just, sorry, I got to go. No, <laughs> they just kind of keep their head down and say, oh, I got you know, to show up to work on Monday. So, all right, so, but the rest of these people start scattering. They just start scattering, except for the apostles, they stayed in town. Now, verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house to house, house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about 
preaching the word. Who gave them permission to do this? Who ordained them? I mean, it's one thing to have Philip. You know, Philip, he's just a table waiter. But now he's out, but he was ordained, I guess, sort of, kind of. But who gave this permission to all the rest of these people to go preach the gospel wherever they show up? I think it was the same Holy Spirit that gave you the authority to do that. All right. They went about scattered. They scattered about Philip. Specifically, we're going to talk about Philip. He's another one of the seven. They didn't call him deacons. Later, they had titles for these jobs, and they would probably call them deacons. But at this time, they just... He was just one of the seven, they called him. Um, later, he gets the title of evangelist, because he really is one. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now we have another problem, because these guys weren't Jews. They were Samaritans. They were kind of half Jews, sort of Jews, not really Jews. They were a little bit of Jewish blood in them, but mostly they were something else. And they only worshipped, they, they worshipped God, they worshipped Yahweh, but they only used the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's all they would use. They didn't, they didn't look at any of the Jewish history books. They didn't use any of the Psalms, Proverbs, any of the wisdom literature. They, didn't, they completely ignored all the prophets. They just ignored all that. And they worshipped in a different place. They worshipped, actually, in the same place that Moses brought, or excuse me, Joshua brought the tabernacle to originally when they first moved to town or moved into the city, or moved into the nation, actually. And uh, so they went back there and worshipped there. And they had some other strange things that paganism mixed in with this thing. But if you remember, Jesus actually went to the Samaritans. Remember that lady at the well? She was a Samaritan. She wasn't a Jew. Ah. And the disciples were kind of disgusted that he was talking to a woman, but a Samaritan woman. Oh, my goodness. And then, you know, the whole crowd comes out of the city and Jesus gets, you know, all right, anyway, all that's going on. So Philip takes it on himself to say, well, I think I'll go preach to the Samaritans. I suspect it was more like Philip went down to Samaria and he was probably talking to the other Jewish, you know, refugees that were fleeing Jerusalem. But then Samaritans were listening into the conversation and pretty soon they kind of stepped into the crowd and What? What's that about? And start asking questions about who is this Jesus? And so he just explains to them what's going on. And so, I don't know, revival starts breaking out in Samaria. He says, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. So he's preaching the gospel and performing miracles. Okay, pretty cool. Who gave permission to Philip to preach and perform the miracles? You know what? It's really about that light. It's about that light that's showing from the shining from the face of Jesus Christ that's coming into his life, into your life, filling you with, his, with the Holy Spirit, with revelation, with transforming power that doesn't just transform you into the image of Jesus, but it gives you the power to transform the world that's around you. Now, this ends, this period, uh, this whole thing ends with Acts chapter 9, verse 31. This is how it result, this is the result of this, more multiplication. So the church, oh, I should say, um, this persecution that drove everybody out of town only lasted for just a short time because God knocked Philip, excuse me, God knocked uh, Paul off his high horse, and then he turned. He just, he, he became a convert to Christianity, 
And now instead of driving the persecution, he's actually driving the conversation towards Jesus Christ. And so it picks it up here in verse 31. Multi, uh, uh, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Why did it multiply? Because now we have thousands of people going through the countryside preaching the gospel. The church in Jerusalem had been 20 to 30,000 people strong by the time this persecution started. At least 10,000 of them were going through this, the, the cities of first Judea and then Samaria and then on from there. Okay. Collectively, the point here is that collectively we make the difference. It's the authority and power of the body of Christ. We are filled with the transforming light of God. And each of us are critical for the work that needs to be done. We're all, we're all gifted to build up the body of Christ. I'm going to read a couple of uh, passages about those gifts, okay? Romans 12, verses 4. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not have all the same function. And so my, my elbow does not do the same thing as my ankle. My kidney does not do the same thing as my lungs. So we each have different parts and different functions. That's the way the body, that's the way a physical body works. That's the way the body of Christ works. We all have these, some parts are very visible. Anybody who stands up here is very visible for a short period of time. This is my 15 minutes of fame. I guess, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> some of you never come up here, but you have a very vital function. Very, very vital function. All right, so here's a list of them. Uh, we being many, uh, one body of Christ, individually members of one another. I, I think the King James put this, we are members in particular. Members in particular, remember that? I, my, when I got married in 72, uh, my wife went out and bought, you know, it was the Jesus people movement, and so there are all these hippies running around in crazy Jesus freaks everywhere. And, you know, I'd been a Christian all my life, but all these strange people kept coming in through, to our church and dragging hay on their feet. And, and they, where did they, where did they, did they live in a barn? As a matter of fact, they did. It was called the Lord's Land. It was a commune out in Palmer. And they would come to town, come to town, just come to church here. Well, anyway, one of the things they did to make money was they made Bible covers leather Bible covers, really nice. Now, this was a really popular thing in the 70s because hippies seemed to like it. But today, you don't see too many really fancy Bible covers. But my wife bought me this tri-folded Bible cover thing. It was, it was, I mean, it made, you know, I had a big Bible. It was a good, heavy King James Bible. And, but with that, that thing, I mean, you could be a Bible thumper like nobody's business. <laughs> Whomp! It would go, just let that thing down. Anyway, you open it up, and in the spine it said, Handmade by the body of Christ and members in particular. Everybody's got a function. And somebody's function for that period of time was making leather Bible covers to fund their, their commune. Everybody's got a job. Everybody's got a function. Even leather workers. All right. So it says, having gifts, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them in prophecy in proportion to our faith, in service in, in our serving, one who teaches in his teaching, one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
I'm going to skip. There's another one in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, but I'm just going to skip by that. And we're going to go to Ephesians 4, verse 11. You're probably familiar with this, but I'm going to read it out of the Passion Translation because, well, it's more passionate. That's why, I guess. <laughs> and he has, and he has uh, Ephesians 4, 11, and he has appointed some with grace to be apostles and some with grace to be prophets and some with the grace to be evangelists, and some with grace to be pastors, and some with grace to be teachers. Hallelujah. I get in there. And their calling is to nurture and prepare the body, prepare the holy believers. That's you. You and I. We're the holy believers. Their job is to prepare the rest of us holy believers to do their own works of ministry. And as they do this, they will enlarge and build up the body of Christ. The body of Christ is multiplied when you start doing your job. When you start doing, when you start exhibiting the, the glory of God's light to the world, to one another. All right, I'm going to skip down to verse 16. It says, for his body has been formed in uh, his body excuse me, has been formed in his image and is closely joined together and constantly connected as one. And every member has been given divine gifts. That's you, by the way. Every member has been given divine gifts. Divine gifts. Not just leather workers. But leather working can be divine. If you're doing it for the glory of God, it certainly is. Every member has been given divine gifts to contribute to the glory, to the growth of all. And as these gifts operate effectively throughout the whole body, we are built up and made perfect in love. Now, each of us has been given the creative light of God that's shining in us. And the body of Christ on the earth is multiplied and matured as each one of us participates. Don't come to church just to sing a song and hear another sermon. You have to participate. Come to participate. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, when you come together, each one has something. It says, somebody's got a hymn and a lesson and a revelation, a tongue and interpretation. That's just a short list. There's lots and lots and lots of stuff to go on. And, you know, I know that in a church this size, you've got a couple hundred people here, several hundred people here. Um, if everybody had five minutes, we'd be here for hours and hours and hours. I don't want to do it. All right. So, yeah. The point is, though, you don't have to do it. You don't have to come up to the platform and to do what you do. To use your gift. See, you look straight ahead. There's a person in front of you. What is God telling you about that person? What is God urging you to say to that head that you've been staring at for the last hour? Have you asked him? If you ask him, he will give you something to say. Some word of encouragement. You could call it prophecy. You could call it encouragement, exhortation. You could, all kinds of things. Just say whatever. Or if not the person in front of you, maybe it's the person right next to you. All right, so we all have this, an opportunity. We come to participate. But the, the power of God, it's in you, is not just for church meetings. It needs to be taken to the marketplace Take it to your schools, take it to your work, take it to the parks, take it to your neighborhood. 
It's that power that can enable you to change the world. Hmm. It'll transform your community. All right, now the in conclusion. Musicians, where are you? In conclusion, that was the... You got a few minutes, it's okay. You know, you know, you know what? I just told this joke a few minutes ago, but uh, you know what a preacher means when they say in conclusion. Nothing at all. Don't get excited. <laughs> all right. So, in conclusion, though, it's about the transforming power of God's glorious light. It's not about you. It's about the transforming power of God's glorious light that he's put within you. So I'm going to read this verse again in, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That that. that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines from the face of Jesus Christ, just like it shined from the face of Moses. Don't put a bag on your head. Don't stop looking at the glory of God. Bask in that glory. Read his word. Get into his presence. Worship him. And it will transform you. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, clay pots, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's not about us. Now, some of you are saying, I'm too old. My pot's too old. My pot's been broken. My pot's been worn out. My pot's damaged. You know what? Cracked pots. Cracked pots show the glory of God better than whole pots. It's the cracked pots that let the glory of God shine. You are not too old. You are not too damaged. You are not too broken. The glory of God is in you. Demonstrate that to the world. Your power, the power that's in you, can enable you to change the world that's around you. Allow the light to shine from your face, from your words, from, and through your actions. Change the world. Let's all stand up. Some of you, some of you have no idea about any of this. This is all just a mystery. And you know why? It's because the veil that's over your heart. You really don't understand. You've never turned to the Lord. And so it's all kind of a mystery. You understand that it's a metaphor, but you don't really know what it's about. But the Bible says that if you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. And you'll get a good glimpse of who Jesus really is. Some of you, some of you have put your faith in Jesus Christ in the past, but have put that on the shelf. 
and today you're still a little bit confused. Not really walking in the light. So to those two groups, I just want to address this. We, if you want to turn your life to Jesus Christ, it says turn to the Lord and the veil is removed. If you want to turn your life towards Jesus Christ, the darkness goes away. And it's replaced by the light of his glory, the knowledge of his glory. That's what we're looking for. So I want you all, I want you all to pray this prayer after me. Just all of us. But if, if you, if you've said, I've never done this before. I've never given my life to God before. Or I have, but it was so long ago and I haven't done anything with it. And I don't know what to do. Think about that. Let's do this over again. Let's commit our lives to God right here. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I put my trust in you. And I ask that you give me your light. Enlighten my life. Give me that treasure. Father, I ask that you give your glory to us. And Lord, I give my life to you. I turn my life to you. I put my faith in you. And I trust you and not my own understanding. Now, Lord, let me see the light. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please connect with us at unitechurchak.org. We hope to see you soon.